Welcome to episode 76 of the Skipper's View podcast. This episode is presented uh, by SeatGeek, who is sponsoring today's episode. Brez, this is the first episode we're doing this, so I need to get this right. Uh, use code SKIPPERSVIEW to get $20 off their first purchase on SeatGeek.com. Uh, the link will be in the description of the podcast, YouTube, uh, and on our Twitter and Substack. Uh, so on today's episode of the Skipper's View, we have a special guest with us, Dan Evans. Um, his resume is pretty thick, uh, so I'm going to go list off some of it real quick. Um, from the beginning, so I'm going to go all the way back to Chicago. So 20 years, uh, born and raised in Chicago, uh, became the assistant GM and director of baseball operations for the Chicago White Sox. Uh, he then moved on as baseball oper operations consultant for the Chicago Cubs. Uh, and then this is something we're going to talk about because I, I, I want to get in, inside your head. You went out to California, three years as GM for the Dodgers, uh, second best winning percentage ever by a Dodgers GM. A bunch, you brought in a bunch of players, which we'll talk about as well. You then spent three years as special assistant to the GM in Seattle, uh, spent five years in Toronto. Your Twitter was named the top 100 must-follow sports business Twitter accounts uh, in 2014. Uh, you might be the best Immaculate Grid player on Twitter right now. Uh, I've, been, I've, been, I've been scrolling through your Twitter to see your, your rarity scores, and it's very good. Uh, and then most recently, uh, you work for Athletics, ESPN, Baseball Prospectus, Society for the American Baseball Research, and this Iowa ballpark. Also, I can't tell for sure, but do you teach college classes? I do. Yeah. So, Professor uh, Professor Dan Evans as well. Uh, so, <laughs> so to start first off. Thank you for coming on. Uh, we're really excited. Really excited to have you. And Thanks to both I guess, of you guys. I I would have wore a jersey if you had told me, Dean. I you know what? I just I always wear this, or I have a sweatshirt with our logo on it, and it was that one's in the wash, so I just threw this on. Um, I like it. <laughs> And yeah, I, I want to know where your affiliations are, but let's talk first. Like, what are you doing right now? So, I mean, I was going through your LinkedIn, your website, um, everything. It just seems like you are, you're doing a million things still. Yeah, I am doing a million things. And first of all, guys, it's really nice to join us. So thank you. Um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a restless guy who has been, I don't know, an 18 hour a day guy my entire life. Even when I was going to high school, I was playing multiple sports, and that's just who I've been my whole life. And um, I just find that I have a lot of interests and a skill set that fuels those interests. And <laughs> good and a bad thing because it keeps me really busy, but this is a time of my life where I should be at top golf today, or I should be <laughs> hanging out with my dog or something. And instead, um, you know, I'm mourning the loss of Peter Seidler, who's a good friend. And it's just, um, you know, what I've, what I've been very lucky, guys, and I'll just be very, very honest with you. I fell into an internship at the age of 20 as a junior in college at DePaul University. And that little five-ounce ball gave me four decades of fun all over the world, jobs I never envisioned, meeting people I never thought I'd meet. And I think, you know, for a lot of people, the general manager position is like the be all, end all, the thing that caps it off. It was just the first half of my career. And uh, I'm really proud of what I've done since, but I'm prouder of the relationships that I have because of the game. And that for me is what I what I treasure most in the world. Yeah, I mean, some of the names of the people that you've hired, um, Kim Ang being one of them, that you've recruited, 
uh, that you've drafted. I mean, we'll, I'll, I'm going to ask you about that in a little in a little while. But let's just start Chicago. Like Chicago, you're a Chicago guy, right? Born and raised Chicago. Dad was a White Sox fan. Mom was a Cubs fan. Yeah, you did your homework, and I had two grandmothers <laughs> who uh, were also big baseball fans and used to pull me out of school to go see big games at Wrigley Field and Comiskey Park. So I guess I was destined to work in baseball, guys. Which team did you lean more towards? Well, I joke, I tell my buddies that I always was partial to the team who paid me. But when I was <laughs> a kid, um, I was about 15 minutes from Wrigley Field on the north side of Chicago. And I got out about 2.20 in the afternoon in elementary school. So I used to go to a lot of Cub games. Um, and then White Sox games, I was go, I would go as often as possible. And what's really bizarre is I got to end up working for both teams. Um, but I was a little bit, you know, you guys get this on the East Coast. I was really lucky. I had two teams in my hometown. Mm-hmm. And as a result, as a, you know, I grew up in a neighborhood with 100 kids on my block. We played baseball, basketball, football, hockey, 24-7. I swear to God, school got in the way. So did sleep. And it was, it, for me, the love of baseball didn't start when my career began. Um, you know, I, I was going to games when I was seven, eight, nine years old um, with family members. So I think I leaned more to the Cubs, but uh, I certainly cherished my time with the White Sox because I had parents who liked both, you know, one of the two teams. So I had to play it right down the middle. Yeah. So you go, you go to Chicago. Is, is your, you said internship. So is your first... What's your first role with the White Sox? My first role with the White Sox was an internship. Um, Thank you, Ray Meyer, the former head coach at DePaul University, for steering me to the interview. Um, I I bounced between public relations and baseball operations and listened to the people that I had on my staff. And this is why I became, you know, what I became. Um, John Bowles, Charlie Lau, Jim Leland. Um, Ken Valdeseri, whose father is one of the greatest SIDs in the history of college athletics. Um, Jack Gould, a national um, award winner. He was, a, he was just an incredible fighter pilot. So I had phenomenal people around me. And, and I'll be honest with you guys, I am the luckiest guy in baseball because I was surrounded by huge talent. And uh, I remember my dad saying to me one day, my dad said, listen, just shut the hell up in meetings. Listen to what these guys are doing. You're around some of the smartest people in the game, and you're so lucky to be a part of it. And he was dead on. Because you were, yeah, you were like, what, early, mid-20s when you started off the White Sox? I was a junior in college, Dean. And that's, in that's fact, insane. I had a Shakespeare professor who didn't like the fact that I missed a class because of opening day. And uh, I, I came back to my apartment, and I was like, how could anybody, you know, get mad at something like that? And I had another teacher say to me, hey, don't worry about it. Just just enjoy what you're doing. You do internships to find out what you're going to do. And the yeah. best thing about it, Dean, when my internship was over, um, the strike hit. And they told me I could keep working for free or I could ask for a job and they'd have to lay me off because of the strike. <laughs> well, I was a, I was a kid, and I was in my my senior or going into my senior year summer uh, break, and I just thought I'm going to learn as much as I can. I had Tony Larusa as my biggest mentor, 
at that time. So, you know, very honestly, guys, that probably wouldn't happen today. Just we had 19 people on the staff. That's all we had. Um, It gave me an opportunity to really grow and learn and be around great people and and learn how much I loved the sport because my plans were to be a criminal prosecutor. That's all I wanted to do. I had already clerked the previous summer. And I'm just like, this is what I want to do. And then all of a sudden, opening day in 81, you know, Fisk, a New Englander, hits a bomb on opening day of Grand Slam. And the ballpark erupted like it never had when I was there in the past. And I went, wow, this is fun. And I'm, I'm here. This is pretty cool. And it led to 40 plus years in the game. Yeah, when I was first going through your LinkedIn, I said, oh, man, is this guy like, not that you're not that bad if you're old, but I was like, this guy's got to be like 80, 85 years old because you, you started you started so young. Um, I was. So, and, and that's a plus and a minus because I was around people who were a lot older than me. And, and at that time, I was bringing very new things into the game. Mm-hmm. Now, you go, you, go, you go to the Cubs for, what is it, a year? Six months. Six months. Okay. Um, <laughs> How is the move? How, what, what's it like? Like, was it difficult for you to move out of your hometown, your home state, uh, and go to Los Angeles? Personally, side note, me and Brett have been to LA. I was not a Los Angeles fan. I didn't love the, love the city itself. Um, I get it. So what, what was that? What was that change? And what was, what was the motivation? Like, I, obviously it's the Dodgers. So, I mean, I, I know yeah. what the motivation is, but how difficult was that to go from Chicago to Los Angeles? Guys, you know what? I grew up in my hometown. Um, I didn't, I didn't really grow up. I got older. I tried never to grow up completely. I went to, you know, college in my hometown at DePaul. Um, no GPS necessary there to this day. My family's all there. I have really strong ties to, to the, to the town, but my father gave me some great advice and he said, listen, you've conquered this town and you've really had a lot of fun and you've done some great things. Going to Los Angeles and fixing the Dodgers could really help the rest of your career. But most importantly, what else can you really do here um, in your career? And it was a real adult conversation with his adult son. <laughs> and mm-hmm. um, at the time, you know, yeah, it was hard. It was real hard. I remember our family was crying on our way to the airport, um, just realizing, you know, that everything we had... I lived in this idyllic north side neighborhood. I had a massively bad commute to Comiskey Park and then a great commute to Wrigley Field. And my entire life had been spent traveling in the game, but my roots were clearly in Chicago. I got off the plane and it was 82 degrees on <laughs> December 30th. And we were going to the Rose Bowl and the Rose Parade two days later. And I went, oh, wait a second, this might work out okay. And I'm glad it did. It was the biggest challenge of my career. And uh, I, I hired the right people and made some, you know, seemingly good decisions, which propelled me to the rest of my career. Yeah. So you said that it's, like you said in the beginning, GM isn't like the end all be all. So it's not the highlight yeah. of your career. But I mean, you start, what were they, seven, seven seasons in a row losing playoff draft, yeah. right? Yeah, and you know, and and we had really fallen wayward. Our our scouting and player development was just awful, and the staff was just in a stagnant period. So luckily, I had some great contacts in the game, and I just refreshed the Dodgers. But just a quick 
aside, Don Drysdale was one of my mentors. He was one of the broadcasters of the White Sox. And uh, Don used to tell me about the Dodger way, and I had so much respect as a result. But I'll tell you when it hit me. It hit me opening day. Um, my second year, I'm looking out. we got a full house in the ballpark. I can see the foothills. And I'm just like, oh, my. This is absolutely so much fun. Um, you know, it's, I loved living there. I lived in Pasadena, La Cunada. I didn't worry about the traffic because I didn't have any traffic where I was. <laughs> um, but the Dodgers were a really special brand that I was able to revitalize. And that alone, I mean, hanging out with Vince Scully on buses. I mean, come on, guys. This is, yeah, you know, the... that, you, that's, that's a pretty good world. Yeah, the stories that you have must be must be insane. I'm going to ask you a Jordan story at at the end because I have I have to ask that. That just makes sure makes sense. Is there is there a highlight though? Uh, is so some of the hires like Kim Ang ends up being the first female general manager. Uh, is there like a highlight for you in terms of whether it be personnel or players like that you brought that you brought on that you're like that that if there's something something that I did there like that to me is is means the most. Could be small, wow. could be big. Um. I think Edwin Jackson making his major league debut against um, some big left-hander, Randy Johnson, in Arizona. He throws six innings. He, he just dealt after being a converted outfielder about a year earlier. Um, that was a good one. But I'll tell you more than anything was but sitting around my staff at the end of my first half season, and Kim had joined us. And just seeing the staff we had assembled, we had eight former big league general managers, five former general managers, all done very candidly on purpose. I felt I needed to surround myself with the best answers. And I had mm -hmm. Tommy Lasorda about 10 feet to my right. And I looked around the room and I thought, all right, this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to, to run a ball club, but I wanted to run it the way I wanted to run it. And luckily the people who owned the club at the time and ran the team at the time, gave me absolute full reign of the club. And we did some great things as a result. Yeah, I, I was, and I'm going to now list off just some names of players that you were involved in both of the Dodgers, but also, also the White Sox and kind of throughout your career. And if you could just give me mm -hmm. like, which, which one you, and then we can jump into stories. Cause I mean, you just must be a story machine. Um, I am. But <laughs> if, just if there's one that, not the most impact on your career, but maybe maybe life. So Michael Jordan, Bo Jackson, Tom Seaver, which is one that I didn't I didn't even think of. And then when I saw the list, I was like, oh wow, yes, that made, he was eighty four to eighty seven or something with the yes. with the White Sox coming around there. Yes, um, Paul, mm -hmm. Paul Canerco, Matt Kemp, Frank Thomas, Robin Ventura, uh, Matt Kemp again. I wrote twice. Uh, Russell Martin, and then I can go on for a while. But just those are some some of the big names. Is there someone? impact on career or just like life in general that you're still close to you still talk to wow almost all of them actually um i've always been that guy a little different from the usual mold i always felt um the relationships were the key to the game so as a result i got really strong relationships with players um especially our core guys um some of them give me a hard time on immaculate grid days which is kind of <laughs> funny when when I don't mention them or I don't use them, I get a DM saying, hey, Danny, what about me? I mean, and I go, well, that had given me probably about a 50 score. That's not good enough, you know. Um, but very honestly, guys, some of the fun stories are off the field. 
Um, you know, I, I just developed relationships with guys. You know, you work stupid hours in baseball. I mean, you know, from early February until hopefully the end of October, you're doing 12 to 15, 18 hours a day. So for me, the relationships I gathered um, were incredibly fun and made it a, a really wonderful career. You know, Frank Thomas, we draft, he goes out, takes the greatest batting practice round I have ever seen. Scared to death before, um, you know, saying, Danny, what do you expect? And I'm like, just go out and swing the bat and just have some fun. And he made an absolute baseball cathedral cavern look small. He's putting balls on the roof. He's hitting the light tower. He's going upper tank all the time. Well, here I am now. 30 years later, and Frank is still one of my best friends. Um, seeing Robin Ventura a couple of years ago um, was one of the highlights of my year. And people like David Ross, Alex Cora, Dave Roberts, guys that are, you know, big deals in the game today, these are some of my protégés. So, you know, so I, I tend now, I root for people. I don't root for teams. And I think that's my first boss, Roland Heeman, telling me, listen, you're going to gain some great relationships. Cherish those relationships because they're what makes this game so special. And, you know, people like MJ, I mean, you know, Michael Jordan, Terry Francona, I mean, you know, they were part of my everyday world in 19, what, 93 or 94. And, and I, I love that I've had that opportunity. Yeah, I would love to just scroll through your phone's contact list. Um, <laughs> no, you wouldn't. <laughs> so just give me, I mean, my dad's going to kill me because I should really ask a Seaver story. But give me a Jordan story first. Just It could just be one. Like, what's the funniest Jordan story you have? Because sure, I, I, easy. Just, I feel like I have to. Terry Francona, <laughs> Michael, and I are playing golf in St. Pete at a charity tournament. Um, they're both a heck of a lot better than me. I'm like a 12 handicap. And... Um, we go in, Michael was really, really, and to this day, is loyal to his brand. So we go to McDonald's on, uh, on the highway, and Mike's driving. Um, I'm in the back seat because I've got a really short inseam. Tito's in the front. We order some food. The Range Rover is mobbed. I mean mobbed, okay? And, you know, you're with one of the Beatles. I mean, that's what it's like. And, it, and he's an absolutely great guy. I love him. I just, I love Michael Jordan. So um, he signed every autograph of every person, which is all I ever saw him do, which I, to this day, can't believe and respect so much. Well, we get up to the drive through window. We, he hands the food back to me. I start delivering it. There's more people. He starts signing some more, and then we're done. And we start to pull away. And it turns out that Terry, in a really fun practical joke, ate his filet of fish, ate his fries, <laughs> and ate his orange and his chocolate shake. And Michael goes, Terry, that's, that's not fine. I'm hungry. <laughs> and he says, he goes, oh, we'll get you some more. Don't worry about it. He goes, no, we're going to get it right now. And he pulls around and he gets right back in line. Well, Dean, Brett. I mean, I'm done. I've eaten my meal, okay? And um, Mike pulls up, and he turns around, and he says, Danny, you want anything else? And I said, 
Yeah, kind of like another chocolate shake. The one that, you know, Terry drank, I, I never even, it sounded so good. He signs again for everybody, and the three of us are laughing so hard, so hard. So we pull up out of the lot, and Francona goes, lesson learned. Don't eat your lunch. And he goes, exactly. He says, and as a manager, you should have known better than that. And to this day, I, I don't think I've ever laughed harder in my life. And the way he treated everybody in that um, drive through line was honestly remarkable. I have so much respect for the man as an athlete, um, as a competitor, but as a person, oh my gosh, he's just such a fun guy. Yeah, yeah, that's. I mean, that's that's awesome that he just signed all all the all the autographs. Would he? I mean, I'm assuming you're going to say yes, but I have to ask it because I'll get hit if I don't. You think he would have made the MLB? No doubt. Go back and start, no oh, doubt. just okay. no doubt. The progress he made in one year was extraordinary. I mean, Dean, he hit almost 280 in the fall league that year. Yeah. And he was really coming on. Playing the outfield, he was amazing. The stride length was incredible. He was Dave Winfield in the, in defensively. I think he would have hit. He'd been an extra outfielder. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we were seeing him at 31, 32. Yeah. Um, but I saw him play a lot that year, and I'll be honest with you, the progress he made from December when he started to learn how to hit to the fall league to the following spring training was a remarkable achievement. So I have no doubt he would have played in the big leagues. And does he does he like come to you for that? Like when he when he goes back to the Bulls, like is that does he come to you and tell you that? I was one of the people, yeah. So yeah. and I. I I cherished that year with him. It was unbelievable. Yeah. I knew him a little bit, but I knew him great from that point forward. And I'm and I'm really lucky our paths crossed the way it did. That's I mean, that's that's awesome. Um, so I guess I guess now I just, we'll just jump into. I don't want to hold you too long. I know you got a busy schedule. Just like some mm -hmm. modern 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 day questions, because uh, obviously you're sure. still very involved in the game. There's so much news, so much news going on. Um, so Brett, if you want to just jump in. Uh, just some free agents, free agent questions that obviously everyone everyone's talking about right right now. Yeah. Well, first, Dean, I thought this is one of the best years baseball's had in a long time. And you know, I'm an older guy, but I don't think old, and I don't act old. And I love the mm -hmm. emotion. I love the display of emotion that we're seeing in the game. Um, some of that old school garbage that you couldn't show emotion. I couldn't stand it. We're seeing people from all over the world on a stage. Um, unlike we ever have before. And with the advent of technology, we can watch him play all the time. I mean, I'm obsessed with Otani, um, Acuna, Julio Rodriguez, De La Cruz. I mean, these are guys I love. Um, and I, I just think this was a fun season to watch. Free agents coming up, you know, I was lucky enough when I was working for the Dodgers to cultivate a real awareness in Asian baseball. It was part of our mission. We were we wanted to get back and be the team that signed Hideo. So, you know, we signed Hideo. That's one of the things we did. We had three Japanese players at one time. Um, I cultivated a real awareness about Pacific Rim baseball. And for the last 25 years, guys, it's been one of my strengths. I've gone over there over 100 times. I've seen um, games in Japan and Korea, Taiwan, China. And as a result, you know, some of the free agents that are coming over this year, I mean, these guys aren't names to me. They're people. 
Um, yeah. Like I saw Otani a ton in Japan before he came over. And I got some crap about some of the reports I wrote because I thought he would be very candidly exactly what he's become. I thought <laughs> he would be the most exciting, um, stunning, dynamic player the game has ever seen. Luckily, I had two people in Alex Anthopoulos and Perry Manassian, two future GMs, that heard me loud and clear and recognized I wasn't embellishing. Um, so Yamamoto would be the first guy I would talk about. Yamamoto is an extremely talented right-handed starter, all sorts of athleticism, character, 25 years old, four-pitch mix, 80 command, and 80 command's hard to find. I mean, that's real hard to find. Fastball's above average with high spin rate. His slider, his curveball have wickedly high spin. Um, his curveball's ridiculous. And then his split has such below average spin that it just implodes. I mean, he's the king of the 55-footer swing and miss. Um, so I think he's going to be a big-time guy. I think he'll be the best um, starting pitcher on the market. Teams that have scouted him will go a long way trying to sign him. You're getting him in his prime. He is a dude, and he's really, really good. Uh, big fan of Yamamoto. There's a kid, Lee, who's a Korean center fielder, plays for the Heroes, one of the teams in the capital, above average defender, just a sweet-looking hitter. Oh, my gosh, he's got such a good swing. High contact rate. I don't think he'll have as much power in North America as he did in Korea. But this guy's going to be an above-average player, um, a terrific outfielder. You know, how many center fielders can you plug in to be a really big offensive contributor? I think we're going to, you know, he's kind of been under the radar, broke his ankle or fractured his ankle in July. And as a result, there's not a lot of footage out there. But I've seen this kid, and he's a good-looking player. Um, then the last guy I would mention is another left, uh, a left-hander named Imanaga, former Yokohama Bay star. He played for Alex, Red, uh, Alex Ramirez, who is a, a Venezuelan who's had a lot of time in the States as a minor leaguer. Um, as a result, he's got a very aggressive approach. Left-hander with a good arm, plus fastball. Um, good command that's gotten better, really high spin. So he's a north-south guy, pitches up in the zone a ton. I think he's going to be a very sneaky um, contributor right off the bat. Um, he's going to be Senga-like without the split. It's slider mm -hmm. change instead of the death fork. But what we're seeing, guys, is we're seeing guys come over and competed a really high level in the big leagues. And, you know, so the, you know, the, the freakiness for some people about guys coming over from another country, well, our game is about 35% international now, so we shouldn't be surprised like we were years ago. Yeah, no, I, I, I well, the one, one question I do have, do you think that, because in Los Angeles, I think, again, there's a very strong Japanese community, do you think players yeah. are going to be more, more now that Senga's gone to New York? Do you think they're going to be more open to coming to the to the East Coast? 
if so you, you have Yoshida in Boston now, you have Senga in New York. In the past, yeah. primarily been on the West Coast, also because flying to Japan and Korea uh, is a lot easier. But do you think they're going to be more open now to coming to the East Coast? I'm just saying that's, that's a, a Red Sox. That's a great question. <laughs> oh, I get it, Dean. And the Red Sox are so active and have a great culture. Um, they've they've done super things with the Japanese players that have played um, at Fenway. I mean, just a real good inner circle and inner workings. You have to build a foundation of a franchise. But here's what's going on in Japan right now. You know, Nomo came over in 95. Each only know Japanese players playing on TV, um, you know, at 8 o'clock in the morning. So their game's at an all-time high, and their awareness of the big leagues is at an all-time high. Think about it this way. If the two of you were to be courted by a Japanese team right now, you'd ask a lot of questions because you don't have as much awareness about the geography, about the cities, the teams, the managers, the culture of the team. Well, with everyday players playing a lot, you know, Yoshida, um, Otani playing over, and then you get Kim, the Korean, playing for the pods, all of a sudden that daily, I would say, hanging out, watching him play, has people in the Pacific Rim more aware than ever of the geography, of the culture, of the cities themselves. That's why Otani this time will be really interesting. Whereas when he came over last time and he didn't have the awareness of the cities, now he not only knows the cities, but he knows the style of play, he knows the towns. I think that will lend him to a very different um, tour. But I think the West Coast, particularly Seattle, San Francisco, um, Los Angeles will always be a great place simply because there's a large Asian population in those towns. Yeah. And, you know, as a result, food, culture, grocery stores, your own people. I mean, what do we like? We like to be around a lot of different people. But when we're stressed out, we like to be around people who are most like us. Um, that's how a lot of people alleviate stress. You know, you go back to your language, your culture, your customs. Well, I think you're going to see cities that have thriving Japanese and Korean cultures more and more have players come to come play for them. Yep, that makes sense. I mean, I, I wrote the thing. I just well, I was saying how Yoshida and uh, uh, Yamamoto are like best friends. I like scrolled through all their social media for like an hour. And I'm like, that right. just the, com the, the comfort level for them is so important that the Red Sox might have the leg up. Last question, then we're going to let you go. Stepping away from free and agency. Were, and they were teammates, you know. Just they don't were teammates, forget that. Yeah, uh, Buffalo, They're Buffalo, right? Buffalo's together. Buffalo's. Exactly yep. right. And then I have a bunch of pictures of Otani. I'm doing like a little like web putting things together. Uh, I love it. I know it's not going to happen. Last question, Brett. Just ask him about, about Soto, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. Okay. Um, and Dean put out a piece on this uh, a couple weeks ago. We're intrigued. Juan Soto, probably the most established young player that – we've seen in a long time who's going to command a massive contract and yep. where, where do you think he's going? And do you think he gets traded before the season or mid season? Well, first of all, Brett, I mean, I think you established it right. This is a guy who has huge numbers at 25 years of age. It's extraordinary when you compare him in war and in stats um, where he is today compared to some of the greatest players in the history of the game. I mean, in his first segment of his career, 
he compares favorably with a lot of great players, Hall of Famers. And yeah, he had a substandard year, but still his numbers were ridiculous. I mean, he he gives you deep counts. He gives you high OBP. His OPS is always going to be good. He's going to hit. I think this is a guy that you have to move. He's going to be a free agent at the end of the year. I think um, it's going to be hard to sign him. You bring him on in the open market, and the Padres, there's a lot of conversation about not being able to maintain their payroll. They've had some conversations about that externally, probably complicated today by the passing of their chairman, Peter Seidler. So I think were I um, in a Padre decision-making role, I would try to find out what Soto's value is, because Soto on the open market is going to be extraordinary, and a team that views him as an impact long-term bat would probably give up an awful lot to get him, simply because you're going to get the peak years of his career. Where do I think he's going to go? I don't have the slightest idea, but I know whoever gets him is going to have one heck of a great bat right in the middle of the lineup. And, you know, everybody always focuses on free agents, but for me, this is an elite trade partner. You get a guy like this and you plug him into your lineup, even if it's for a year, your lineup just got exponentially better. Well said. Well, uh, thank you again uh, for hopping on with us. I'll let Dean close us out, but I appreciate your insight on the Soto thing. It's been a hot yeah, That's great. Great question, Brett. Yeah, and obviously prayers to the entire Padres organization. I saw, I just saw on Twitter about the passing of of their owner. So. Uh, and condolences to you as well. Uh, you said you mentioned at the beginning he was one of your friends. So um, I just want to thank you for coming on. Uh, this is an awesome interview. Um, where is the best spot for our followers and our listeners to find you? Would it be Twitter? I think so. Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Um, as you pointed out, Dean, I'm a little multifaceted. So for the people who want to gain a career in baseball, I'd go to LinkedIn. Our sports management worldwide program is fabulous. We've got over 400 alumni working in baseball. I'm really proud of that. On Twitter, you know, I have a lot of fun. I I post my immaculate grid even when I have bad days at the beach. Um, <laughs> so that's at Dan Evans 108. And then on LinkedIn, I do a lot of fun stuff. But you see the other side of me, which is certainly not the baseball side of me. You see the guy who loves music, loves to hike, loves to do a lot of fun things across the world. And uh, the other thing I'd like to encourage everybody is if you're a baseball fan, I'm on the Sabre Board of Directors, and I'm really proud of the fact that we are the, I, I think we are the, the ultimate eyes and ears of the game. Um, I, I think the community that is baseball worldwide is always looking for a place to kind of gravitate. No matter what your interests are in baseball, we've got that silo in Sabre. You know, yeah, we're nerds and we're proud of it, but we're not just stat heads. You know, we're stadium crazy people. We're people that are crazy about women in baseball, analytics. There's all sorts to gather. So I think those those are my, I, I think, best magnets. But, the you know, the, the big thing for me is I'm still active and still very dialed into the game. And, uh, you know, I just enjoy the sport. Awesome. So I will, I'm going to take, I actually just opened up the Sabre website real quick and I see, I see your little bio. So I'm going to take all of that. I'm going to put it into the link, uh, 
in the description of the YouTube video and everything. And again, just thank you. Thank you for coming on. You're welcome, guys. Thanks a ton. I appreciate your time. All right. All right.